I welcome all of you who are returning after a time. I saw Dan here. We love you, and we're happy to have you here. And those of you that I don't know, I welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. This is your church. It's not mine. And uh, you have a home here, and you don't have to wait a while to belong. You belong because you have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not just words. It's true. Um, We are going through the book of Galatians, and some of you uh, know this, but some of you don't. We are about to finish, and the title of our sermon this morning is The One Who Is Taught, but that's really not true because I've decided that since so many people here would be new and so many were missing a couple weeks ago, that I'm really going to go back and reiterate some of the things that I said a few weeks ago based on the previous text. So, uh, the title of this sermon is Better uh, Bear One Another's Burdens, number 7,343. <laughs> um, by the way, do any of you know where Burma is? I know where it is. It's in a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> Burma? Uh, so where is Burma? Taylor, I'll give you first shot, although you might be out serving somewhere. Where's Taylor? All right. Do you know where Burma is? Okay, stand up and yell it. That's my son, so I can do this to him. Where is Indonesia? In between Australia and Asia. So it's north of Indonesia and east and west of what? Wait, wait, wait. Burma. Okay, is it an island or is it on the mainland? Is it? Okay, Joni. Okay, that's that's okay. Between Thailand and India? Okay. Its neighbors are China. Really? I never thought of Thailand being that close to India. Okay, that's Burma. All right. Well, Godspeed. Burma, in reading the literature of the mission Joni will be with, Burma has no missionaries. And uh, so pray for Joni. Um, Increasingly, as we do become that one world that President Bush's father talked about, which we didn't want in that direction, uh, increasingly missionaries are going to be in and out, doing various things, and Joni is a perfect example. I always tell people that my first recollection of Joni is walking into the church with this big, loud, was it loud? It was bright blue. Loud, and it had M-O-M-A in a square on it. And I thought, whoa, (laughs) Museum of Modern Art. Uh, that was Joni. She was an eastern seaboarder with all the sophistication of New York City. And she loves the Lord and is a delight. We love you. So open your Bibles to Galatians 5, verse 26. Would you please? Please. 
because there is a context for the statement from which we took the title of the sermon, the one who, ta- who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And as I prepared to preach on that, I thought it so much comes out of the context that precedes it and follows it. So let's get a feeling for it. First of all, look at verse 26 of Galatians chapter 5, if you have a Bible. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Now, if you know anything about the book of Galatians, you know that it is thought of principally as a theological treatise, a a book of uh, doctrinal truths, a compilation of right things that we should believe about Jesus Christ and wrong things that should be condemned in the church that we should not believe about Jesus. Principally, that uh, works are not to supplant faith in the life of the Christian. Now, that sounds sort of heady. You know, it doesn't have much traction in our hearts because uh, today we're not dealing, excuse the popping, we're working hard on dealing with our sound system, so there's going to be popping every now and then, and it's not anybody's fault we're working on it. Uh, today, um, as in the time of the Apostle Paul and the church in Galatia, um, theological issues always have specific things that they work themselves out over. It's never just the concept of works, the concept of faith. It's always some issue that we're fighting over. And in Galatia, you know the issue they were fighting over was circumcision. Uh, what was being told them was, Uh, you're not really a good enough Christian as a Gentile unless you do the things that made us into Jews. Now, we were born Jews, but really circumcision is as close as you can get to being born a Jew. So if you really want to fit among us, what you need to do is homeschool all your children. You see, immediately the gap appears. You know, it's not necessarily that uh, today everybody in this church is telling you to be circumcised now, right? That's not an issue. But there are things today that we add to the gospel saying you need to do this and then you'll really be one of us. You know, you need to wear a tie. You need to not wear a tie. You need to homeschool your kids. You need to have lots of children. You need to have few children. I mean, back when I was, when I was becoming an adult and getting married, the moral message was tie your tubes after two. It was a Christian message. It's hard for us to believe there was a time like that. I lived through it. All right. And so in the book of Galatians, Paul is not dealing uh, with the issue of circumcision. He is, but he's really dealing with all the trappings that we add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a book of doctrine. He argues it in the context of particular things, namely circumcision, but it's a book of doctrine. It's an important book. Now we're coming to the end, and... I think in a university community, it's very easy for us to think that all that matters is what we think. And uh, I refer to one of our elders who will remain nameless, but I did just look at him. I will refer to him occasionally to people that don't know him as a disembodied brain. I think David was shocked to wake up one morning and find that he had a body. Now, we have lots of David, so you don't know who it is yet. And really, that's typical of a university community. University is filled with people who are always the odd man or the odd woman out in high school. When they weren't in the locker room, it was never an entirely comfortable experience. But boy, when they got to the university, they found what they had been made for. 
because now it's all brain. And boy, they have that in spades. And so the brain starts going. And of course, churches in a community like that can be churches where all that matters is the brain, too. And so pretty soon, churches, of course, major in the things that they're good at. And because this is a university community, and because, after all, we believe doctrine is important, pretty soon all that matters in this church is the brain. All right? What we believe, the words, the vocabulary we use, you know, make sure you say sovereignty all the time, or providence, or, you know, I don't know, reformed. Yeah, say reformed a lot. Um, And so this becomes our identity, but then we come back and we hit the end of every single one of the Apostle Paul's epistles. And what we found are what people call ethical instructions. I hate to call them that anymore because now the word ethical means uh, the way that you engage in casuistry so that you never have to say anything is right or wrong. You know, if you've ever heard a course in medical ethics or ever listened to a lecture in it, it's all about how it doesn't matter what's right and wrong. What matters is what's going to save the patient money and and, and put more money in our pockets. I went to a lecture with Adam uh, a few years ago um, at the auditorium over at the hospital. That was really what the lecture was all about. It was a famous ethicist from the university. So I don't like to refer to the end of uh, the books of uh, Paul's letters. I don't like to refer to the end of them as ethical instructions because I think we become jaded about ethics. So what do you replace it with? I don't really know. Um, if you have a suggestion, tell me afterwards. But anyhow, you get to the end of the, book, the epistles, and particularly this is true of Galatians, if you have your Bibles open, and if you start flipping through, what you'll see is doctrine, doctrine, a few exhortations about how to live with each other, doctrine, doctrine, all right? And then you get to chapter 5, and you begin to hit, like verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another, and walk by the Spirit. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. So here you've been hit with freedom, forget the law, freedom, forget the law. Then you get to chapter 5, and it's all of a sudden, don't bite and devour one another, because... Uh, then you might consume one another. And uh, by the way, uh, don't engage in immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like this. So you've got the first part of Galatians, the majority of it telling you, forget the law. That's over. It's by faith. And then you hit these intense laws. Don't bite and devour each other. Don't give yourself to sensuality. Don't do this, that, and the other thing. And it's very easy for us, uh, having learned, the one thing every Protestant learns is that Rome is wrong in saying you're saved by works. And so Protestants say, okay, works are wrong. The law is wrong. Legalism is wrong. All that matters is that you have faith in Jesus. And then you hit the end of Galatians. You find out all that matters is not faith in Jesus. It does matter how you live. Now, if you have trouble with that, focus on that, because what I said is true. All that matters is not Jesus. It does matter how you live. You say, well, yeah, but how you live is a part of Jesus. So, like, if you love Jesus, then you'll live right. And I say, yes, that's it, precisely. But if you set it up in such a way that you can just live the life of a hellion, if you set it up in such a way that you can go out and have anonymous sex with other men, 
If you set it up in such a way that you can use drugs, that you can lust after every woman your eyes come upon, you can be greedy, you can love your money. If you set your life up in such a way that you can do anything your heart desires and turn around and say, Galatians says it's all about my faith in Jesus Christ, you've got a basic problem. And that's the end of every letter that Paul writes where he gets into ethical exhortations and instructions where he shows Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The man that sows to his sinful nature from that sinful nature will reap destruction. So we come to the end of the book and we're hit with these things. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. And we're in the middle of them. And the one that ends the chapter, although of course Paul didn't write chapters, but the one that ends chapter 5 is let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. You know what's interesting? You know what the origin of false doctrine always is? It's always pride. It's always envying each other. It's always trying to raise up people who will be our followers instead of Billy Graham's followers. Or instead of Tom Ellsworth's followers. He's the pastor of the big church in in town here. In other words, false doctrine is a means of me promoting myself over other men and, and peeling off disciples who will follow me. False doctrine is it doesn't exist in a in a vacuum. And even the denial of the importance of doctrine is a false doctrine that comes out of a desire to raise up disciples who are, who will follow men. In other words, if somebody says to you, you don't need doctrine, all you need to do is love Jesus, that man is promoting a false doctrine so he can have disciples who will follow him. You know that, right? You know that if you're on campus and you have a professor that's really intense about the issue, that there are no absolutes, that everything is relative, that's a professor that's teaching an absolute, right? And his absolute is supposed to make you feel good about going out to your frat party and doing whatever you want to and thinking he's a great professor because he's finally relieved you from all the oppressive, fuddy-duddy stuff that your parents and and the church you went to back home. And, And there I've just wrapped up state universities. That's it. That's the whole ball game. You come here, they cut you off from your parents, they tell you everything you believed is wrong, and you'll feel good about your sexual lust. That's it. The women won't feel good about it when you've used them. Sooner or later, you'll have to pay the piper. But the one absolute is there are no absolutes, and that professor then will be voted most popular, and all his evaluations will be good, because, of course, since there are no absolutes, his tests will be easy. And then he'll get tenure. So, at the university, when men say there are no absolutes, And that's the only absolute. They're engaging in a self-promotion which will win disciples to themselves. And in the church, when people tell you that doctrine doesn't matter, that all that matters is that you believe in Jesus and pray the sinner's prayer, they're engaging in false doctrine that will raise up disciples. They're lowering the scale. Okay. False doctrine is always about self-promotion and raising up disciples that will follow us. It's interesting, in preparing to preach this Sunday um, on the issue, on the, on the verse that I had the title of, uh, namely um, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. You all know that that refers to pastors. That's me. 
And so I'm going back and I'm reading Calvin and Luther from the time of the Reformation about uh, that verse. And, and what they say is, they say, you know, it's an ironic thing. It's, 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 it's perverse. But um, a few years ago, when Rome and all its errors were in full swing and uh, the Pope was, you know, had the money pouring into him, uh, none of the priests had any trouble having money. Uh, the money just poured into the Roman Catholic Church. Poured in. And, and they said, but now that true doctrine has come, now nobody wants to support the pastors. And then guess what they said? It's very predictable. They said, the people who teach falsely never lack funds. They're always very successful. Well, isn't that the point? And what's the point of teaching falsely unless it makes you rich? You know, right? And so we come to the end and we think about this issue that it says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. We tend to see that as sort of this chop-chop command that exists in a vacuum, but it's not. It's, it's in the middle of the hurly-burly theological contest of Galatians. And what Paul's saying here is, come on, you guys. Look at the jealousy and envy in your hearts. Look at the jealousy and envy of the men that are contesting for your loyalties. On the one hand, there are those who are faithful. They will follow my doctrine. On the other hand, those who are not faithful, they will reject my doctrine. Now, come on, don't be envying one another. Don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. Look at your hearts. It will tell you what's going on. And... uh, you know, if, if, if I'm going around as your teacher, if I'm going around seducing you by flattery, you shouldn't trust me. <laughs> right? If I'm always telling you that you're the best, why would you trust me? You know you're not the best, right? Well, some of you are. And, you know, I have to be honest with some of you. I mean, Colin, you're the best. Absolutely. Isn't that right, Katie? Yeah, see? (laughs) So you go into a church, you go to teachers, preachers, professors, you go to those who teach you, and and, and you, you, you test the vibes. We all know what vibes are. And husbands, if you don't ask your wife, she does. And... In the vibes, you look, and if you see arrogance, you see self-promotion, you see pride. What's going on there? False doctrine. You go, wait, wait, does not compute. What's the connection? Well, the connection is that these things are always the way that we promote ourselves. These are the ways that we win disciples. And you say, well, yeah, but you're the only one up front. I say, oh, come on, don't be naive about this. Churches are filled with men who are competing with the pastor for disciples. Next time somebody's critical of me, nine times out of ten, the reason is not that what I've done is some surprise. It's not that I'm perfect and and, and they're just being rebellious. Usually it's they're promoting themselves. If a woman is being critical of another woman, what is it? Is it because the other woman needs to be corrected? No, usually it's because that first woman wants to promote herself. All right, And so we use all these criticisms of each other as a way of promoting ourselves. And it's not just people in the pulpit. It's you in the pews. You do this all the time. 
in, in high school youth group, you do it towards each other. Somebody is, is athletic, and so they want more time playing on the athletic field before the time starts. Somebody is pretty, and they want more time socializing with the boys. Somebody is really a bang-up Bible scholar, and they want more time studying Scripture. <laughs> you know, and you say, oh, no, no, the person that wants to study Scripture is always pure motives, and it's the other people that have the wrong motives, right? No, no, no. We use our knowledge of the Word to thump up on each other, don't we? Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, we've come to the end of the book of Galatians. Not quite, but we we are close, striking close. And what we have here is we have these exhortations about not biting and devouring one another, fight with one another, be boastful, challenging one another. Um, And then we hit verse 1 of chapter 6. Brother, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now be honest with me. Those of you who are new in Bloomington, those of you who did not grow up here, be honest with me. How many of the churches that you've ever been a part of, has this been any part of your community life? Now let me read it again. Even, brothers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. All right, let's take an example. Let's say that a woman who is in her 60s has a son who is a rebel who is involved in homosexuality, in drugs, in alcohol abuse, and lives in the Castro District of San Francisco. Okay? How many of the churches you've been involved with, would that woman allow that to be known by the church, and would there be men and women who were regularly praying with her for her son? How many? When I came to Bloomington, I remember a woman... Dear, dear woman, one of the sweetest women I've ever known, a woman who was married to an unbeliever and, and an unbeliever that wasn't quite the funnest thing to live with, uh, and yet she was just vulnerable, sweet, humble, meek. And I remember that uh, shortly after I got there, she came to me and asked me to visit her son. Her son was up in Indy. And she told me that he had some sort of something or other or hoojimajiggy, you know. And uh, so I went up to Indy. Well, what it was was it was a place for men that had AIDS and who were dying. And that was back at a time when um, it was a different time than today. And uh, I went up and visited him. And I touched him physically. I thought, this is awful. This woman at the center of this church can't let anyone know what her, what her son is dying of. I thought it was wicked. Do you understand why? How do we have a church where a woman like that can't have her burdens borne? Where her son's removed like a pariah. He's up in Indy. He's dying up there. He's in a sterile professional environment. He didn't need that environment. He could have been in one of our homes.
she couldn't bring it up in the church because it was a church where you were not allowed to bear one another's burdens because anybody that had a burden was obviously an unspiritual person. Antiseptic church. Church much like the cosmetics counter of Nordstrom's. Everybody's wearing white frocks and painting their faces. The central image I always had of that church, the Nordstrom's Cosmetics Department. Is that the kind of church you grew up in? Is that the kind of church you've come from? Is that the kind of church you want? Has Satan attacked you to such a degree that you don't even have hope for the kinds of churches that we see in the book of of Galatians? where people do bear one another's burdens, that when somebody falls, it's not a chance for everybody else to cackle, but a chance for everybody else to say, I've been there, brother. That's who I am. And the Lord had mercy on me, and the Lord has saved me from that sin. Now, you want to see the sins I'm currently working on? A few years later, I was asked to do a funeral. A man who had been involved in the opera world in New York City. And guess what? He died of AIDS. And guess what? Again, it was all hush-hush. Nobody was to know. He was sort of snuck into town and, and, and buried quick with nobody there. And this is a family at the very center of that church. Everybody knew him. Now, I don't blame parents for wanting to hide their failures failures of their children. But brothers and sisters, that's not this church. And it's not this church because it's not a biblical church. And people that go to a church like that and live like that are not living according to the Word of God. You cannot be a Christian and a Lone Ranger. Okay? It's American. It's Marlboro. (laughs) Come on, don't you look at the ads? (laughs) What's the Marlboro man? He don't need you. That's for darn sure. All he needs is his horse and his saddle. Eh, Cigarettes, yes. And also, maybe the wine, women, and song of the town once every six months. Little hell raising. Never heard a man. But then he's alone. That obnoxious command of Scripture that says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. This last week I was reading an account of the restoration, or lack thereof, of the city of New Orleans. And uh, in the article they were talking about a Gallup poll that had been conducted in New Orleans right just a few weeks before Katrina hit. And they found that more than half of the city's residents, regardless of age, race, or wealth, were, quote, extremely satisfied with their personal lives. In fact, they found that the residents of New Orleans had a higher percentage than any of the 21 major American cities in the survey. So the author of the article is looking into the issue. Why is it that the people of New Orleans loved it there? And he found that the people of New Orleans had a deep sense of community and caring for one another, that they liked their neighborhoods and they liked living in their neighborhoods. 
He keeps asking why. Why? Why? And then he goes and he meets with a woman named Elizabeth English who studies the effects of hurricanes on buildings at the Hurricane Center of Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. And, and she says this. She says she is trying to save an architectural feature that is as emblematic of New Orleans as crayfish. I haven't taken French. I don't. Yeah, somebody please put me out of my misery. Etouffee. Etouffee. Okay, thank you. It's crayfish etouffee. <laughs> and what is it? It's. Does anybody want to take a guess? Architecture. What is it? Well, you're close, but that's not it. It's shotgun houses. Anybody know what a shotgun house is? Okay, now listen to this. The shotgun, sometimes the house is four to six times as long as it is wide, catches stray breezes and allows them to pass through every room. The house is too narrow to have a hallway. So the rooms are lined up one behind the other. The original plantations in the Mississippi River Oxbow that later cradled New Orleans were long, thin strips starting at the river and running north toward the lake. Quote, people grow accustomed to the geometry in which they live, unquote, English said. When it came to laying out lots then in New Orleans, they naturally laid them out again the same way in long and narrow. And that led to the long and narrow shotgun homes. The shotguns, in turn, helped develop the close-knit neighborhoods that New Orleans loved. A shotgun's salient feature, its most obvious point, is what? Its complete lack of privacy. Its complete lack of privacy. Do you know the most important thing that Willow Creek will tell you about seeker-sensitive churches? If you go back and listen to Bill Hybels talk about what he found when he went door to door in my home area, DuPage County, and I know those rich people. Do you know what he found? They said again and again to him when he went out and asked what they wanted in a church. Come on. You know. You should know. The whole world knows. We shouldn't be the only people that don't know. What was it they wanted in a church? Come on. What? Anonymity. Anonymity. Did that woman that washed Jesus' feet with her hair have anonymity? Did she have anonymity? Huh? How about Peter? Blustering, loudmouth Peter. Did he have anonymity? No, he made a horse's ass of himself constantly. And that's why I love him. He wasn't about protecting his pride. Now, he was proud. But he was a lover. What about John? John, resting on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Did he have anonymity? What about Judas, the one who dips his hand? Jesus is being pretty specific. How about the people that gave money in the temple? Did they have anonymity? Look at the rich man. Look at what he's pouring. Now look at the poor widow. Now, okay, now see what she gives. See what he gives. Did they have anonymity? How about this? How about next Sunday you come back and we're going to have you come up and everybody's going to watch what you give and I'm going to make like parabolic points to about what you based on what you give. Bill Hybels says we've got to give people anonymity. Don't single them out. Don't ask them to talk to each other. Don't identify them. Don't name them. 
don't embarrass them in any way. What would have happened to the Apostle John if he'd never been embarrassed? What would have happened to the Apostle Peter if he had never been embarrassed? Huh? Would Peter have grown? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Huh? Huh? That's a church. In, in uh, service master work, uh, I used to work for service master, which is a house cleaning. Now it's a big conglomerate. But it used to be the bread and butter was going into homes and businesses and cleaning. And we had uh, one kind of cleaning that paid very well and was messy, and it was called disaster restoration work. And that was where you weren't going in and just removing the dust that had settled in the traffic pattern of the living room. That was where you went in and that home had been burned, it had been smoke damage, a puff back of the chimney. It had had serious problems. More likely, though, it was a home where they'd never washed their carpet in 10 years and now they were expecting you to do miracles. All right? And so you'd go in and you'd get messy. You'd start by uh, rotoing it and then you'd use the steam cleaner and then you might have to do it again and again and again and again and you were sweating and... And the water was absolutely filthy. Uh, And that's the condition of the church in America today. It's a church where people think they have a principle of anonymity. They actually are so fooled that you think that a church where your sins are known to other people must be a bad church because the churches that are growing are anonymous. You know, your sins will never be known by them. How in the world do you obey a direct command of Scripture that says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ? How are you going to do that in a megachurch that's been completely created to allow you to be anonymous? Robert Schuller, right? I worked for the builder that built his first church. He starts in a movie uh, theater, outdoor movie theater, where you don't even have to get out of your cars And then he goes to a church where he has a big sliding glass wall. Let's say this thing. But it's glass. And as I preach, I'm at that end or this end. And on my right are all the people in the cars in Southern California. Because you know that cars are big in Southern California. And on my left are all the people that make a choice to come into the facility. Clark Esser. I worked for him. He built that thing. And, and, And today... To this very day, we have a nation filled with churches that are so dirty, so, so, so contrary to Scripture, that anonymity is a principle, and you'll never have to bear one another's burdens. you just never have to do it. Yeah, you might bring some clothes that are sent down to Katrina, and you might be a work team and go on a short-term missions trip, but the whole church is created so that those are options. You know, you can make those choices if you want to. And, of course, that strokes us where we itch, doesn't it? You know, intimacy is a choice at a megachurch. You know, knowing one another's burdens and bearing them is a choice at a megachurch. And that's completely unbiblical. Now, this doesn't mean that we go around airing our dirty laundry. It doesn't mean that we go around looking for... uh, things that we can be in the know about and and humiliate people about. It doesn't mean that we uh, every Sunday have people come up to the front and confess their sins publicly. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we do love one another. Because if you do not love one another, 
you are not fulfilling the law of Christ. And loving one another is not noticing that so-and-so's SUV wasn't quite as clean this Sunday in the parking lot. I want to read in closing, uh, later in that same article, uh, they say this. They say, when it came to laying out lots in New Orleans, they naturally laid them out long and narrow. This church is laid out long and narrow. Okay? We don't have hallways. It's intentional. It's not because we're stupid and haven't listened to Bill Hybels. We want a shotgun house here. <laughs> okay? They were intentionally laid out long and narrow. Getting from the front room to the kitchen, which is usually in the back, will mean walking through everybody else's room. Okay? On the narrow lots, the shotguns sit close together so neighbors are also on top of each other. You're right next to your neighbor, and you have to walk through everybody's room to get to the back. There's no study where Dad is alone with his computer. Okay? And then she says, quote, That communal culture everybody talks about in New Orleans, that warmth, all that life on the street, you could say that originates with the need for every plantation to have a little piece of riverfront. Later, a woman is being interviewed, and she says this, in general, when New Orleanians describe what they love about the city, the first thing they mention is neither the food nor the music, but the intimacy of the neighborhoods. Knowing everybody on the block where you were born and never leaving. Paula Taylor says this, quote, This is our neighborhood. Do I want to see it better? Yes. Safe? Yes. Clean and decent? Yes. But this is home. It's a perfect, perfect uh, allegory, metaphor, parable for, for a church. Shotgun house, no halls. It's intentional. Uh, the houses built next to each other. Um, even this is intentional because there's a chance that you might, like peripheral vision, see somebody else here. So these long phalanxes, okay? And we believe that this will grow you in godliness and that this will make you more humble as you come to Jesus Christ. We believe that it's good. And uh, I'm preaching this again this Sunday because many of you make choices at the beginning of the academic year where you're going to go to church. And we always see every year uh, some people come who, they love this church. And then guess what? They start dating a non-Christian. I mean, it's just after 14 years in Bloomington, it's real obvious. They start dating non-Christians. And guess what? They stop coming. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, guess what? There are lots of churches that will take them. Because nobody will ever know. But, brothers and sisters, that's not how you are kept safe. To be kept safe, you have to have a mama who loves you. <laughs> and this is a church that will love you. Because it's biblical. So if you have trouble living with your own sins and with other people's sins... Um, ask the Holy Spirit to give you humility. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you love for other people, particularly at their point of sin and weakness. And uh, make your home in a church where you'll be known. Shotgun houses right on top of your neighbors. 
uh, organic or holistic um, good, biblical. And it's obvious because the New Testament talks about it all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.